uh, service of the week because we are able to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through your Bible. But just it's on on a Wednesday night, right in the middle of the week after we've been uh, back in the world for a few days, we can come back and just hear your word and, and be refreshed spiritually. Father, I pray you uh, help the time, bless the time we have, and help everyone here to be able to learn something to grow. We love you, Lord. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, well, we're there in Acts chapter number uh, 24. And just so you get a little bit of the context, uh, if you look back at chapter 23, look at verse number 24. The Bible says, And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. If you remember uh, from last week, you remember that there was 40 men, and they made a vow that they were not going to eat or drink until they had killed Paul, and they made this plan with the high priest, they said, you call him down, you tell him you want to talk to him, and when we, as soon as he comes near us, we're going to kill him. And uh, Paul was uh, told about that, and he made sure that the chief captain was told about that, and they set up the plan where they, they uh, you know, brought in all, you know, 200 soldiers, and, and uh, three score and ten uh, uh, spearmen, and, and uh, you know, all the different things, and they took Paul uh, over to the governor of Felix. And if you look at verse number 24, it says, And provide them beasts that they may uh, set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he, talking about the chief captain, wrote a letter after this matter. And it's interesting because uh, it, it prints for us the letter that was written in verse number 6, Verse 26, we're reading the letter that he wrote, and it, it says, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greetings. This man, talking about Paul, was taken of the Jews, and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army, and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Now that's a lie. Do you remember that he didn't? Uh, he did rescue him, but do you remember that he didn't know he was a Roman because he was going to have him beaten? And then Paul said, "Hey, you can't beat me. I'm a Roman." And he's like, "Oh, really? You know?" But now he's kind of using that to his advantage. So it's kind of interesting uh, to see. You know, it, it's a lie because that's not what happened, but it's true in the sense that this is what the man wrote. Verse 28. And when I would have known the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment of his accusers also to say before thee that they uh, had against him farewell. And that's where the letter ends. Verse 31 continues the story. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipras. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what providence he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So that's really where we left off last week. Paul showed up with uh, Felix, the governor, and he's waiting for his second trial. If you remember, his first trial was before the Jews, the council of the Jews. And remember, he, he uh, you know, kind of outsmarted them. He saw that half of them were Pharisees, half of them were Sadducees, and he you know, made it an issue about resurrection. And they're really going to literally going to pull him apart. Now here, he's waiting for his second trial, and it's going to be a Roman trial before the governor, uh, Felix. If you look at verse number 1, uh, verse 24, it says, And after five days, 
Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders. Now, you might be asking the question, why five days? Why did it take so long for them to come down uh, to, to talk against Paul? And here's what you got to understand. I, I believe in this chapter we can learn a little bit uh, about the tactics that the, enemy, uh, of the, the enemies of the cause of Christ used against Paul. And we can learn from that because those are the same tactics, by the way, they are going to be used against us. And the first thing I'd like you to see about the enemy of the cause of Christ here is that, number one, they are prepared. They are prepared. The Bible says in verse 1, and after five days. Now, you know, I read that and I thought, why, why did it take five days? Paul traveled there in one night. Why did it take him five days to get there, to, you know, to get this, uh, this in process? And the answer is in verse 1, it says, And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, ascended within the elders... And look what it says. We learn of a new character. It says, and with a certain orator. The word orator is talking about a someone who's a public speaker. Someone who's good at public speaking. Maybe like a lawyer or something like that. And it says, they came with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. These guys were prepared. They said, if we're going to stand... Because before the, the last courtroom was... It was a, it was a joke. It was a council of the Jews, and they, I mean, they were all corrupt. Now they're going before an actual governor, Roman. they got to be able to prove their point. they got to be able to bring some evidence. So they said, we're not going down there by ourselves. We're going to get, you know, these high, the hired guns, this orator. He's going to come down with us, and he's going to speak on our behalf. He's going to be very fancy, very eloquent, and we're going to make sure that we get what we want. You gotta understand something about the enemy here is that the enemy is very prepared. And you know what the sad part is? Is that the world prepares itself to fight against the Christian. And when I say fight, I want you to understand. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When the Bible says that we are in a fight, we're not talking about a, a physical flight fight. We're not talking about, you know, going to war with our government. We're talking about a spiritual warfare. Is what the Bible calls it in 1 Timothy, a spiritual warfare. And in the spiritual warfare, you know, the world is very prepared to fight against Christians. But you know what the sad thing is? The average Christian is not prepared to fight against the world. The world, I mean, you talk to, you talk to the unsaved, you talk to atheists, they've got every argument, they've got every excuse, they can explain to you. And here's the sad part is that I found, is that the average atheist knows more about your Bible than the Christian who's supposedly supposed to love this book, and love God, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, and believes this. And the average atheist can tell you more about your Bible, can tell you more about the stories, can tell you more about, you know, and they'll try to pick stuff up and say, well, here and here it contradicts itself. But you can't tell them it doesn't because you don't even know what they're talking about. That's the truth. They'll tell you know. They'll tell you about uh, you know here when Moses said, and you've never even read that. You know, and the average Christian is not ready for that fight. Go with me real quickly to First Peter, First Peter chapter number three. Let me just show you something. These are very common verses. We showed them to you before, but I want you to see them again. The Bible says in First Peter chapter number three. And by the way, this is the average church in America. But by the grace of God, it's not Verity Baptist Church. Because we're trying to make sure that you're read up, and you're taught up, and you understand, and you know what you believe. Not just because, you know, that's what we believe, but because you know it, because you've read it, because you've learned it from the Bible. First Peter chapter number 3, look at verse number 15. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Look what it says. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. 
Bible says you ought to always be ready. And look, if you got saved last week, we understand, you know, you're not going to be ready for that. I understand that. But listen, there comes a point in our Christian life when someone ought to be able to ask you a question about the hope that's in you, Jesus Christ, about the faith that's in you, about your belief. And that, they ought to be able to ask, ask you a question and you be able to answer them and tell them, hey, this is why I believe what I believe. You know, shame on you if, if someone asks you, well, why do you believe in eternal security? And you say, well, I'm... I don't know. You ought to be able to ask. You see, and here's the sad part. Is some of you are asking yourself, what's eternal security? <laughs> and, and, and you stick around here long enough and we'll teach you. But I, I'm trying to explain something to you. you got to know what you believe. And you're not going to get it. Look, I want you to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night is not going to get you everything. That's why we read nine chapters a day. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we have personal Bible time and family Bible time and, and personal prayer time and, and on your own study the Bible and on your own. You know, you can tell us everything. I know you can tell me all the stats about the college football game and the NFL football game and everything, you know, the baseball game and everything that doesn't matter. But the things that do matter, we're like, well, I don't know. The Bible says we ought to have an answer. Go with me to uh, 2 Timothy. You're there in 1 Peter? Go to 2 Timothy, uh, chapter number 2. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, look at verse number 15. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, look at verse number 15. The Bible says this, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible says if you study to show thyself, you, you know it says you'll never be ashamed. You know, you'll never be embarrassed because you don't know. You'll never be embarrassed because uh, you started trying to talk to somebody about, uh, you know, Christianity. Or, or here's the honest truth. Some atheist is going to find out you're a Christian and they're going to come up and try to fight you about it. You're not even going to start the conversation. They're going to start the conversation and they're going to eat your lunch. And let, let me tell you something. That is the truth. Most of the conversations I have in regards to Christianity that happen in the workplace, I didn't start. And I didn't instigate. But you know what? I want to be ready when they come for it. Because the enemy is prepared. If they say, we're going to go fight against Paul in the courthouse, we're bringing the guns. We're bringing the orator. We're bringing our arguments. We're bringing... And let me tell you something. Paul was ready for them. But are you? Paul was ready to give the answer. But are you? You know, we, that, we need to study. We need to read our Bibles. Go back to uh, Acts chapter number 24. We said number one, the enemy was prepared. Number two, the enemy accuses. Look at verse number two. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began, look what it says, to accuse him, saying, and I want you to see, he was an orator. The things he says, they sound very nice. Look what he says. Verse 2, after the word saying, it said, this is what this man said. He said, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. You know what that's called? Buttering up the judge. That's what this guy's doing. He's like, you know, you're, because of you being our judge and being our leader, we have so much quietness and very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Look at verse 3. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix. With all thankfulness. You know, he's just buttering him up. But it sounds good. Verse 4. Notwithstanding that I be no further tedious. You know what the word tedious is saying. You know, I know I'm just telling you everything. You do really good for us and we love you. But I don't want to keep wasting your time. He said that I be no longer tedious unto thee. I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us. And of thy clement 
leprosy a few words. You know, and he begins to accuse him. And let me tell you something. Not only is the enemy prepared, but the enemy accuses. Go with me just real quickly. I, you know, I, I don't want to be too long tonight. But go with me to Revelation chapter number 12. Last uh, book in your New Testament. Revelation chapter number 12. Look at verse number 10. Revelation chapter number 12 and look at verse number 10. Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice. Now this is, talk, this is future events. This is when the, the devil and God, you know, God wins the battles and all that. But it says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ for the accuser. Do you see that? For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Do you see that? The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's accusing us against God day and night. People have to say, well, the devil's in, in uh, hell right now. You know, they watch so many Looney Tunes where Porky Pig was the devil, and he had these little horns, and he had this little pitchfork, and he's in hell, you know, running the show. Let me tell you something. The devil's not in hell running the show. The Bible tells us that the devil's going to be cast in hell in the future. And when he gets cast in hell, he's not going to be in charge of it. He's going to be suffering and torment. He's going to be punished in hell. But right now, the devil, the Bible tells us, he walketh about as a lion, uh, seeking whom he may devour. And the Bible says that he spends day and night before God accusing the brethren. And let me tell you something. The Bible gives us examples of this very clearly. Go over to Job in your Old Testament. Uh, Job, right before the book of Psalms. Job chapter number 1. Look at verse number 9. Job chapter number 1. And look at verse number 9. The Bible says in Job 1.9... It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for not? Do you see that? You know, the famous story of Job, how does it, you know, it starts off, Satan's before God, and he's accusing Job. Does Job fear God for not? Has not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands. And his substance is increased in the land. Look at verse 11. He's going to accuse him. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. This is what Satan said to God. Now we know that's not what happened. If you read the story of Job. But that's what he accused him of. Look at Job chapter number 2. Look at verse number 4. After Job takes his, after Satan takes his children and takes all of that, and he still doesn't, uh, you know, uh, do those things. If you look at Job 2, look at verse number 4. It says, And Satan answered. Because God said, hey, you took his children, you took his business, you took everything from him, and he still hasn't cursed me. And in verse 4 it says, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Do you see that? That's what the book of Revelation tells us. Satan spends his days before God accusing the brethren. And this is what these people are doing. They were accused. This is the, I'm trying to explain to you what's the, what, what's the pattern or what's the agenda of the enemies of the cause of Christ. You can go back to Acts 24. Number one, they're very prepared. Number two, they're in the business of accusing. They accused Paul of, of doing certain things. Look, look at, they're in Acts 24. Uh, I want you to see what, what they accused him of. Look at verse number 5. Look what it says. It says, For we have found this man, a pestilent fellow, 
and a mover of seditions among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now look, this guy sounds good, doesn't he? The Bible says they found him a pestilent man, a pestilent fellow. Do you know what the word pestilent means? Do you know the first part of the word pestilent? It has this word, pest. This guy's a pest. This guy keeps bothering us. This guy won't quit. They said he's a pestilent fellow. They said, and a mover of sedition. The word sedition has to do with government. It has to do with uh, rebellion against government. If you're in sedition, you're rebelling against government. Now look, is that true about Paul? No, it's not. He didn't move against governments. But the Bible said, they, they said, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout all the world. Look, you see how they're like, exactly. Look, this guy leads the entire world, all the Jews in the entire world, against their governments. Because you've got to understand, they're speaking to a Roman leader. So this guy, you know, he's going to be afraid of someone who's fighting against the government. So they say, he's a, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader, ringleader, I want you to notice this, of the sect. Notice that word sect of the Nazarenes. Now look, was he a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes? Jesus was of Nazareth, but there is no group of Nazarenes. But I want you to understand this. In the Bible, when they use the word sect, that word sect would be like our modern day word cult. You're not a Baptist unless you've been, unless you've been you know, told that you're in a cult. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty common thing for Yo, you're going to church on Wednesday, what are you, some sort of a cult? You know, sometimes people think like, oh, I'm not a cult. You know, that's pretty normal. My whole life, I've, li- I've heard people say that. I've heard new Christians who get saved. They start going to church. Their families, you're in some sort of a cult. Why, Why am I in a cult? Because you used to, you know, rob and steal, and, and now you're going to church. That must be some sort of a cult. You're like, what are you talking about? You know? But that's how it works. You know, my, my, my wife, she got saved, started going to church. Start reading her Bible, start praying. Her family's like, what are you, some sort of a cult? You're 17. You're supposed to be getting high and, and getting pregnant. And, and, you know, that's what they wanted her to do. They're like, you're, you're, you're some sort of a weirdo. You're going to church and, and, and living right. But let me tell you something. That's what they said to Paul. They said he's some sort of a sect. Because he wants people to get saved. You know, that's how ridiculous they are. The accusers of the brother. That's the... Uh, motto, well, that's the pattern of the enemy. Look at verse 6. Who also have gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took away out of our took, uh, took him away out of our hands. Let me tell you something else about the enemy. I said number one, they are prepared. Number two, they are accusers. Number three, the enemy sees things in a different light than you and I see them. The world does not look at the, 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 you know, things the same way that Christianity does. Let me just explain that to you. Christianity, you know, we talked about this on Sunday night. Christianity looks at the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The world looks at it as the rules we must follow to get saved. You know, Christianity looks at, like we were just talking about, somebody gets saved, gets their life together, starts going to church, starts reading their Bible, you know, starts working and starts doing right, you know, starts raising their children, spending time with their kids, loving their kids, discipling their kids, and Christianity looks at it like, wow, praise the Lord, glory to God, and the world looks at it as, that's crazy. You know, and these people, it's funny because these people said, we were just going to judge him. But Lysias, verse 7, with great violence took him. 
They're complaining about grapevine. Now let me show you a few verses. Go over to Acts 21.31. Acts 21, just a few uh, pages before this. Acts 21.31. Look at what it, the Bible says. Acts 21.31. The Bible says, And as they, talking about the Jews, went about to kill him, talking about Paul, Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Do you remember when Paul came into town, a big mob gathered together and they were going to beat him to death? Look at, uh, look at, look at Acts 23.10. Look at Acts 23.10. And, and then Lysias came in and rescued him from that because they were going to kill him. In Acts 23.10, when Paul is standing at the council of the Jews, it says, And when there arose a great dissension... The chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him to the castle. The Jews are arguing versus Paul, and they literally grab him by the arms, grab him by the legs, grab him by the head and the hair, you know, his hairs and ears, I don't know what else, and they're literally going to pull him apart. I mean, does that sound violent to you? The, the, the guy was literally afraid. The chief captain was afraid that they were going to rip his arms off. So he goes in to rescue him. And then these people say, he was really violent with us. Do you understand how ridiculous this is? But this is the world. This is the same world that's going to say, you're 17 and going to church? Shouldn't you be getting high? It's like, are you serious? But the world just doesn't see things the same way as we do. And by the way, there will come a day when they will call holy, unholy, and unholy, holy. The Bible tells us that. And these people are like, yeah, he, he did a lot of violence when he took him away from us. It's like, you guys are the ones that are being violent. You guys are going to rip the man apart. Look at verse 8. Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. Number 3, I want you to see the enemy... I'm sorry, number four. The enemy has, a, has us physically. Now, understand this. Not spiritually. But the enemy has us physically outnumbered. I want you to understand that. If you look at Acts 24, look at verse number eight again. It says, Commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining whom thyself may take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse them. And the Jews also, look at verse 9, and the Jews also assented. That's saying that they agreed. So this man, he gave his little spiel. He said, this is what Paul's done. He's a pestilent fellow, moor of sedition, uh, you know, throughout the world, a ringleader of this cult, a sect, you know, and he's done all this. He was, they were really violent with us. And then when he got done with his speech, in verse 9 it says, and the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So this huge crowd of Jews, the elders and the council, they're like, yep, that's exactly what happened, Judge. And it's like all these guys against Paul. But let me tell you something. That's what the spiritual warfare is. They have us physically outnumbered. Go with me real quickly to Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter number 7. Look at verse number 13. Matthew chapter number 7. Verse number 13. The Bible says this. And by the way, you, you just need to understand this for your Christian life. You know, I... I I think it's funny. I don't, I don't really correct people when they talk like this because, you know, whatever. But, but sometimes Christians have this idea that most people are saved and very few people are not. And they have this idea. Anyone who says they go to any church is saved. 
My aunt's saved. I know she goes to a Catholic church, but I just know she's saved. Well, she believes in work salvation. I know, but I, I, she, I'm pretty sure she's saved. Well, my, my uncle, he's a Jehovah's Witness, but I, I know he's saved. Yeah, but Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave. That's part of salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in a literal hell. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that, that Jesus is God. I know, but I'm just pretty sure he's saved. You know, you gotta, you know the, the, the sooner you come to grips with the fact that most people are not saved, maybe you'll start working and try to get them saved. But I want you to look at uh, Matthew chapter number 7. Look at verse number 13. And I'm just telling you what the Bible says here. It says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. The word straight means small. It means narrow. And the Bible is going to describe that for us here in verse 13. It says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Look what it says. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate. And narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The Bible says, how many people are going to find the gate that leadeth unto life? Few. But how many are going to find the broad way? Many. And look, you just got to come to grips with the fact, most of the world is not saved. And most of so-called Christianity is not saved. So, well, what do we do about it? We just worry about it and get sad about it and get mad about it? And, no, here's what you do about it. You study to show thyself a proof unto God. You learn how to give the gospel, and then you go get them saved. That's what you do about it. You don't cry about it and worry. Say, oh, you know, I thought everybody... No, no, no. Go get them saved. Learn how to prove to a Jehovah's Witness and to a Mormon that Jesus is God, and that He died on the cross, and that He was without sin, and He was born of, born of a virgin, and He died on the cross for our sins, and all we have to do is accept Him by faith. Learn how to teach that to somebody and get them saved. But most of the world is not saved. And the sooner you understand that, you know... People, we, we get this idea, you know, oh, you know, he, the guy said he was a Christian. They're probably not saved. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. I, to me, salvation is this. This is how I take salvation, and, and if you don't like this terminology, I'm sorry. But to me, it's like, you're guilty until proven it. <laughs> I'm just going to assume you're not saved until you, you know, tell me how you got saved. You know, I knock on people's doors and they're like, oh, I'm the minister at this church. Do you know for sure your dad said you would go to heaven? And usually those people are like, well, I just told you I'm thinking. Look, as far as I'm concerned, most everybody's not saved. And so you can tell me the right answer, you know, tell me how you got saved. I'm going to assume you're not saved. Because that's what the Bible says. The unsaved outnumber us. But don't get discouraged. Go with me to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8, look at this. Look at verse number 31. Romans chapter number 8, look at verse number 31. Romans 8.31 says this. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say, what shall we then say to these things? And I want you to look at the next statement. It says, If God be for us, who can be against us? You see that? The Bible says, if God be for us. And don't, don't, you know, don't miss out on that statement. That's a powerful thing. If God be for us. Do you know what for us means? The idea there is of like, like when, you know when you were a kid and you were playing Little League and, you're, and your dad was rooting for you? That's what the Bible is saying about God. If God is for us, if God wants to see us win, if God wants to see us victorious, if God is for us, then who can be against? He's like, well, there's, there's a lot more of them. And they got all the Jews. And they got the orator. And they got all sorts of 
a majority. And you can be alone, and you can be afraid, and you can have no friends and have no one around you, but if you've got God, if God's for you, no one can stand against you. So even though the broad way is for destruction, and the straight and narrow leadeth unto life, hey, if God be for us, who can be against us? Not only that, go, go to Acts uh, 24. I want you to understand something. Do you remember when Paul came to Jerusalem? Do you remember the mistake that he made? He tried to assimilate to them. He said, I will become like them to win them. And you remember he started acting like a Jew? And I'm not talking about a race, I'm talking about the religion. He started acting like a, like a Jew, Judaism religion. Remember he went into the temple, he gave a sacrifice, he went into a Nazarite vow, shaved his head, did all those things that are completely unbiblical and unscriptural. But he said, if I can just be like them, they're going to like me. And if they like me, then I can get them saved. And look, by the way, that's the idea of the contemporary Christian movement today. Well, if we're going to reach ghetto America, then we're going to have to take their rap music and add the name of Jesus to it. And if we can add the name of Jesus to their rap music, then they'll, they'll like us because we'll be like them, so then they'll listen to us. So, we're, so now in Christianity, we're going to wear baggy pants and, and, and look like a bunch of thugs. And have, or, or, you know, that's California. Let's, let's go to the South now. Well, if we can take our, our Southern, you know, uh, country music that, and, and just add the name of Jesus to it, which you don't even have to because they already have the name of Jesus to it. We can take that honky-tonk Southern music and just, we'll call it now Southern Gospel, you know, and then we'll be just like them. They'll like us. We'll bring them to church. If we can take the rock and roll music and just add the name of Jesus to it, and we'll get our hair spiked up like them, and we'll paint it all different colors, and we'll look like a bunch of losers on skateboards, and we're black, and paint our nails, and we're going to get the rock and roll music, and we're going to say it's about Jesus, and we're going to be just like them, and we're going to win them. Let me tell you something. Did it work for Paul? Look at Acts 24, look at verse number 10. I want you to understand something. Acts 24 actually... Look at verse number 10. Yeah, verse 10. So they get done speaking, right? Now Paul, they're, they're, the, they're the plaintiff. Paul's the defendant. Now he gets to give his argument. Verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned them unto him to, to speak, answered. And I want you to see how Paul's completely different. You've got to show respect to the judge. But he just says, he says, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. And then he begins in verse 11 to give his defense. You see how like, there's no flattery, there's no like trying to butter him up. Verse 11, Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. He's saying, look, everything they said that he did, he's like, they didn't find me doing that. They didn't find me in the temple. They didn't find me, uh, you know, bringing up people and sedition and all these things. Verse 13. Look what he says. I love verse 13. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. And let me tell you something. That's the truth. When Satan goes to God and he says, let me tell you something about that guy, Roger. He menaced. You know that guy down there? Let me tell you something about him. And he starts accusing me. When he says, hey, let me tell you about brother so-and-so. You know brother so-and-so? Or sister so-and-so. She's been going to that Verity Baptist church. They're, they're going so on. Let me tell you something about it. And he goes to God and he accuses you. Look, he's probably telling them true things about you and I. Because we're no Job and we're no Paul. But you know what? 
He can't prove any of it. You say, what are you talking about? Here's what you understand. When I got saved, the Bible says that Jesus took my sin and put it on Him. And Jesus took His righteousness and put it on me. When God looks at this guy, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the devil says, let me tell you something about that pastor Jimenez. And God said, you can't prove that. Hey, that won't stick on me. That's on Jesus. And Paul's saying to these people, he's saying, hey, they can't prove what they're accusing me. And praise God that Satan accuses you, but he can't prove it. Now you actually did it. But you got forgiven. Look at verse number uh, 13 again. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Look at verse 14. So he says, look, all these things they're saying I did, they didn't find me doing any of those things. They can't even prove that. Verse 14. But this I confess unto thee. That after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I, I don't want to skip through that verse, okay? Because I want you to Paul just said, I believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets. You don't have to turn there, but let me read a verse for you. 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse 16 says this. 2 Timothy 3.16 says... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And you ought to read all of it and you ought to believe all of it. Even Leviticus, even Deuteronomy, even all those chronologies, and all, even the parts that are kind of dry. Yeah, all of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Paul just makes that statement. He says, he says, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He said, look, I believe all of it. Verse 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. Don't miss that phrase, okay? That they themselves also allow. I'm going to bring it all together in a second, but I want you to understand this. That there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, all those things they said I did, they didn't find me doing any of those things. And they can't prove any of those things. He said, Judge, let me tell you exactly why we're here today. He says, we are standing here right now, talking about this. Verse 14, he says, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I. He's saying, look, here's why we're in court today. Because the way I worship God, they call that heresy. The things which are written in the law and in the prophets... And he says, and have hope. He's talking about himself. He said, I have hope towards God, which they themselves also allow. They said, they allow you to have this hope, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. And that's a good boy, verse right there. You ought to exercise yourself towards having a conscience void of offense. A good conscience toward God and toward men. Look at verse 17. Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation, an offering. Whereupon, certain Jews from Asia... Do you remember that when he, they found him, it was the Jews from Asia that found him? It says, Whereupon, certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude, nor with tumult. He said, they didn't find me, you know, causing any trouble. Verse 19, don't miss this. Who ought to have been here before thee? He's saying, look, the guys who first arrested me, they're not even here. Why aren't they here? He says, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they are against me. He says, or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council. He says, look, the people who first had a problem with me, aren't even here. And these guys, I've already been tried by them, and they didn't find anything wrong with me. 
They tried to kill me, but they didn't find anything wrong with me. Verse 21. Look what he says. Except, so this is what he's saying. He's building his case. He's saying, they didn't find me doing this. They didn't find me doing that. They didn't find me here. They didn't find me in the temple. They didn't find me uh, causing problems. The issue is this, judge. The way I worship, they call heresy. I believe in a resurrection, and that's why we're here. Verse uh, 21, he said... He says, none of those things are the actual issue, except it be for this one voice. He says, except for this one thing, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called and questioned by you this day. Let me tell you something. The world does not care if you got the same hair they do, if you got the same clothes they do, if you got the same music they do, if you say the same things they do, they will, you will never fit in. Because the issue they have with you is not you, it's Jesus Christ. The And unless you're willing to deny that, you'll never fit in. Abraham didn't fit in in Egypt. They kicked him out. Abraham didn't fit in in Gerar. Neither did Isaac. The men of Sodom eventually turned on Lot. Lot, man, Lot was it. Lot was the guy. He stood at the gate of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, eventually they turned on him. The men of Egypt? Moses was the prince of Egypt. He went to their schools, he, he had them, he was part of their family, and they sought to kill him. Jonah ran away, remember the story of Jonah? Ran away from the will of God, got on a ship with a bunch of guys and said, we're going that way. And those same guys eventually threw him off the ship. And now Paul tried to fit in with the Jews, and they're the ones trying to kill him. Let me tell you, tell you something, don't even waste your time trying to fit in the world, you'll never fit in. Because the issue is not that, oh, if I could just get the same shoes that they have and the same and just be just like them they like me no the issue they have with you is that you believe in Jesus Christ that's the problem and unless you're willing to reject that they're always going to have something against you Paul tried to win these people by being just like them but the problem was this not anything else that they said it was that he believed in the resurrection now let me just show you something real quickly we got a few minutes and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this I got about 10 minutes but look at verse number 15 it says, And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection. I want you to see this. There shall be a resurrection of the dead. And I want you to see what he says. Both of the just and the unjust. I want to explain to you this thing about the resurrections. And I preached on it before. I actually preached on it recently when we were talking about the great white throne. But I want you to uh, un really understand this. Because I know that sometimes we don't really get things unless we hear them a few times. But go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Look at verse number 22. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Look at verse number 22. I want you to understand this. The Bible talks about three resurrections. The Bible tells us about three resurrections. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And verse number 22, the Bible says this. For as in Adam all die. We learned about that on Sunday night. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We'll learn about that this Sunday night. But every man in his own order. So what order are we talking about? Well, according to verse 22, we're talking about the order of in Christ shall all men be made alive. Do you see that? In Adam all die, and in Christ shall all be made alive. So that's what we're talking about. That's the context. 
So he says, but every man is either going to die or he's either going to be made alive in his own order. What are you talking about? Look what it says. Christ is the first fruits, number one. Number two, afterwards, they that are Christ at His coming. And then number three is the first part of verse 24. Then cometh the end. You see that? The Bible says Christ is the first fruits. You say, what is that talking about? The first fruits in the Bible is always referring to the first. You know, they would give their first fruits offering. It was the first of the harvest. The Bible tells us that Christ was the first fruit of the resurrection. Jesus Christ was the first resurrection. Now, you say, well, pastor, you know, Lazarus was resurrected, and people in the Old Testament were resurrected. Here's what you understand. Everyone who was resurrected before Jesus Christ, they were resurrected, but not in their glorified body. Lazarus eventually died again. You understand what I'm saying? But people who were resurrected, you know, as miracles, they eventually died again. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection, never to die again. He was resurrected in His glorified body. And the Bible says that Christ was the first fruits. What's the next resurrection? Afterwards, they that are Christ at His coming. When Christ comes back, what are we talking about? The rapture. We're going to be resurrected from the grave, and they that are Christ, those who belong to Christ at His coming, when He comes, we will be the afterwards resurrection, or the second resurrection. But then verse 24 says, Then cometh the end. Well, what's the end? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Go with me real quickly to Revelation chapter number 20. Revelation chapter number 20. Look at verse number 5. Revelation chapter number 20, look at verse 5. And I know we dealt with these verses just a few weeks ago, but I want you to see it again. Revelation chapter number 20, verse number 5, the Bible says this. It says, well actually, begin reading at verse number 4. Look what it says. And I saw thrones, and they had sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded of the witness of Jesus. For the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. We're talking about the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, I don't have time to go through it. But we have the rapture, the battle of Armageddon, chapter 19, Revelation. Chapter 20, we begin the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. According to verse 4. Look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead, do you notice? There are those, look at the last part of verse 4. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So there are certain people who lived with Christ. Those are Christ at his those who are Christ at his coming. We just saw that in, in Corinthians. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Do you see that? So Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. Those who are Christ at His coming is the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead, they they don't live again until the thousand years are over. Look at verse number uh, 6. Blessed and holy is He that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God in Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. So if you're in the part of the first resurrection, you'll reign with Christ a thousand years. The first resurrection. They who are Christ at His coming. Jesus is the first fruit. Then they which are Christ at His coming. What's the end? What's, when it says, then come at the end. Look at verse 11 of chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne. Remember we preached about this? And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no, uh, no place for them. And I saw the dead. Do you remember how we read in verse 
five, but the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. Well, now the thousand years are finished. So in verse 12 it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things, uh, which were written in those books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. That's talking about their bodies. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Hell is referring to their souls. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into a lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into a lake of fire. Go with me real quickly Matthew chapter number 10. Matthew chapter number 10. Matthew 10. I want you to understand this because, you know, there's a lot of uh, doctrines out there and people, uh, especially these pre-tribulation people, uh, they, they try to, you know, when you come to the Bible with an agenda, trying to prove a doctrine that you can't prove from the Bible, you end up coming up with all sorts of crazy things. And they've got all sorts of crazy ideas. You know, there's like the resurrection at the rapture, but then there's like the secret resurrection that nobody hears about. Where, you know, you disappear, but nobody hears it. The trumpet sounds, but only... It's like when the dog, you know, when the dogs hear the little high pitch, only certain people hear. They come up with all sorts of crazy things. There's like resurrection 1.5, wherever, you know, and then there's like the, the real resurrection. Then there, I've heard people say, there's a resurrection just for the Jews. You know, I mean, it's, it's so crazy. Let me tell you something. We saw it clearly in the Bible. Three resurrections. Christ the first fruits. They that are Christ that is coming, then the end. At the, at the, at the, at the great white throne. Because He resurrects them. Because you understand. When somebody dies today, an unbeliever, their body is in the grave. Their soul is in hell. But at the great white throne judgment, God resurrects their body and brings their soul out of hell and unites their body. Just like He's going to do for us at the rapture. He's going to bring, you know, uh, this corruptible will put on incorruption and this moral will put on immortality. When the trumpet shall sound, you know, they that are, uh, you know, you know, we, we read those verses. I don't have it. I, I can't quote it right now. I have it memorized, but I can't quote it. But it talks about how we're going to be raptured up. Our body is going to meet our soul and we're going to be given a glorified body. Well, the same thing's going to happen for the, at the end. They're not going to be given a glorified body, but their body's going to be resurrected, and their soul's going to be united. Do you understand? Right now, when a person dies and they go to hell, their soul goes to hell, but their body is buried on earth. But look at Matthew 10. That's the hell that's in the center of the earth. I preached about this also. I don't have time to go through it too deeply, so you just got to follow along, uh, or we'll talk about it later. Matthew 10, 28. But there's another hell. The lake of fire. And look what it says in Matthew 10, 28. It says... And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you see that? Right now, only their soul is being destroyed in hell. Their body is corrupting on earth. But there will come a day, which we know according to the book of Revelation, is a great white throne judgment, when God will resurrect their body and take their soul out of hell. Remember, death and hell were... Were cast into the lake of fire. He will bring their body and their soul unite them. They'll stand before God in their body. And then He will cast them into the lake of fire. Both soul and body. Three resurrections. Christ the first fruits. They that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end. You understand that? That's it. There's no resurrection of the Jews. There's no resurrection of the people at the rapture. Then the people in the middle of the tribulation. Then the people after the tribulation. Then, you know, you know all these crazy things. Three resurrections. Christ the first fruits. They that are Christ that is coming. And then cometh the end. Real quickly. Uh, Matthew 24. We'll finish up the chapter. Matthew 24. Look at one thing. Uh, I just want you to see one thing. Right up. Matthew 24. Look at verse number uh, 24. Matthew 24, 24. 
The Bible says, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, Actually, let's just read this so you understand what's going on. Um, verse, verse 17. Now after, many years, now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation, and whereupon certain Jews from Asia... Actually, we read all this. Let's just begin reading at verse 21. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. So he pretty much says, Look, uh, we're going to follow a continuation. I don't have enough proof here to do anything. I'm going to wait till Lysias comes down and he's going to give us more information. Verse 23. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or come unto him. So Paul's in prison, but he has a lot of liberty. He's kind of like in house arrest. He has a guard, but people can come see him and they can minister to him and his friends can come see him. Verse 24, And after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Drusilla was married to Felix, who was a Jew, so she said, hey, I've heard of Paul, I'd like to, you know, let's, let's talk to him, let's have him preach to us about the faith in Christ, let's have him talk, talk to us about his religion. So they bring Paul out, he's preaching concerning the faith in Christ, verse 25, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, look at says, Felix trembled. So Felix was really shaken up of what he heard. Think about the things that Paul's talking about. Righteousness, how to live right. Temperance, controlling yourself. Judgment, we just talked about that. The great white throne, all that. And Felix trembled. I mean, he's scared to hear these things. And answered. But look what happens. Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. You see that? He says, you know what? It's not, it's not a good time for me to get saved right now. He said, when I have a more convenient season, I'll come for you. And see, here's the thing. When Felix called Paul, he had no intention of actually getting saved. Look at verse 26. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul that he might lose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Felix, the only reason he talked to Paul because he was hoping Paul was going to offer him a bribe and say, hey, I'll give you money if you let me out. Paul said, I will preach you the gospel. That's what I'm going to do. And it really shook him up. But he said, a more convenient season. And here's what you got to understand, okay? The preaching of Christ to the unsaved, is inconvenient. And it actually just gets in the way of what they really want. Which in this case was money. And this guy said, a more convenient time. I'll do that later. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You know what, Felix, as far as the Bible records for us, never got saved. The Bible never tells us he got saved. And you need, you know, we need to just try to get people to get saved when they're in that moment. When the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. The Bible says that the Spirit of God shall not always strive with man. And this guy was shaken up by what he heard, but he said, I'll do it another time. And he never got saved. Verse 27, this is leading into the next chapter, which we'll deal with next week. But after two years, so Paul's in prison for two years. Porcius Festus came into Felix's room. So this new guy, Festus, comes and takes over the jurisdiction. You know, it's a military thing. You Officers in the Air Force, they, they switch out every two years, too. So, I don't know if they got that from the Bible or what. But that's what they're doing. Fest, you know, his two years are up. He moved somewhere else. Festus came over. And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. And that's where we'll leave off of for this week. And we'll continue on next week. Uh, so, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. 
Uh, thank you for our church. Thank you for allowing us to study the Bible and to be able to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and get a lesson out of your scriptures. We love you, Father. In your precious name I pray. 